Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 19, Weather to Launch. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So if you're new to the show, this is where we bring in NASA experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, meteorologists, all to tell you everything about what's going on here at NASA. So today we're talking with Tim Garner. He's the meteorologist in charge for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, more commonly known as NOAA, here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. We talked about weather and how it affects human spaceflight, especially in terms of launches, landings, tests, and training, and even how weather could impact future spaceflights. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Tim Garner. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Thanks for coming today, Tim. Uh, I guess I'll start off by just saying beautiful weather we're having, huh? You bet it is. <laughs> I, I will say that I'm in, uh, I'm in advertising, not production, so <laughs> I didn't create it. <laughs> All right. All right, well, I'm excited about this, uh, this topic today because you wouldn't immediately consider thinking about weather when, whenever you're talking about spaceflight, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Because everything we do eventually launches from Earth, right? It comes yep. from Earth. At so. some point, you go up through the atmosphere, and usually you come back down through the atmosphere as well. <laughs> exactly. So that's, uh, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about today, just weather and, and how it affects human spaceflight. So I guess we'll just start off with just kind of how this is all structured and I know we were talking a little bit just here in the beginning just about NOAA and NASA and those different layers but so the part that you're in the specific part is called the Spaceflight Meteorology Group right? that's correct okay so what, what do they do well uh, largely anything involved with the manned spaceflight program the operations associated with that launches are usually handled from uh, 45th weather squadron typically out at the at, at Kennedy Space Center. The Air Force handles the launch weather. Okay. So anything involving the landing weather and manned space flight, and it's controlled by the Mission Control Center here at JSC, Space Flight Meteorology Group gets involved with that. Okay. So largely it's landing weather and some Earth observation stuff when you're on orbit as well, and a little bit of monitoring the local weather for JSC, which I think we'll talk about later. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of like the, the broad spectrum of things, but um, it's, it's part of, and you know, when we're talking about the layers... Uh, Spaceflight Meteorology Group is part of NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, yep. right? Uh, specifically the National Weather Service. Okay, sp- yeah, that's right. There's yep. even more layers to that. So so what's um, just a general overview, even pulling back even more, what's, what's NOAA? What's their concern? NOAA is the uh, agency that's uh, charged with the oceans and the atmosphere. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the man in charge or the person in charge is the uh, undersecretary for the oceans and atmospheres that's what his official title is in the government huh. the national weather service is a part of that it's charged with the uh, uh, promoting the nation's economy through the efficient issuance of weather forecasts and river forecast warnings as well so okay. that's what the larger role is okay all right nice little overview there so then we're going back down to the spaceflight meteorology group thinking about spaceflight just in general i mean in what what is why is weather such a concern, or what, why is it a consideration when you're thinking about human spaceflight? Well, most vehicles 
they have some uh, sensitivity to the atmosphere. And most people would think it'd be showers and thunderstorms, which are the, some of the bigger impacts. Yeah. But also the winds near the surface and the winds aloft. Uh, the winds aloft will affect the vehicle trajectory on launch and on landing as well. Mm-hmm. And as we get back to dealing more with uh, reentry vehicles that use parachutes, they'll drift with the wind a little bit as well. And you want to make sure you hit your target. Absolutely. So knowledge of the upper winds is very, very vital to a successful landing. Okay. So what, um, what, what sorts of things are you, are you looking for then when you're looking at weather and, and making recommendations for spaceflight? It'll depend in large part on the vehicle and its particular sensitivities to the weather, but almost all of them will have a, a sensitivity to lightning. Okay. Because uh, you don't want to get any vehicle on launch or landing struck by lightning. Definitely not. Uh, you could build a vehicle that was perfectly hardened to just about any kind of weather, but you it'd probably be too heavy to get off the ground. Oh, yeah. So it's it, like everything in spaceflight. It's a trade-off between weight and money and the ability to get you know into orbit. Sure. So... A lot of the weather things impact that. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the newer vehicles as well. You know, since they're going to splash down, we're back to the, back to the future and start. We're back to the past in a certain way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we're also worried about uh, wave heights at sea. Oh yeah. And the wind speeds at, at sea. And uh, you know, the vehicle can splash down in certain wave heights, but then you have a secondary problem of uh, the people that go out there and uh, take them out of the vehicle and recover the vehicle. You know, they can't be right. exposed to you know, high winds, high waves when they're at sea as well. Uh, and then, you know, near the, when things come into land on the land with parachutes, for example, you don't want to uh, come down too hard where the wind's being too high because then the parachute will drag it over and it conceivably could drag the uh, capsule along. Yeah. Usually that's a pretty high wind speed to do that. So those limits are usually set pretty high. Okay. To mention we worry about showers and thunderstorms. You don't want, say, a parachute to get wet. Or if you had a re-entry vehicle that was winged, you know, you want to be able to see the runway as you're coming in. Mm -hmm. Uh, With a thunderstorm nearby, you have concerns with lightning. You know, you could uh, trigger lightning. Usually when an aircraft or a space vehicle encounters lightning, it artificially triggers the lightning. It's not usually naturally occurring. Hmm. It's its mere presence in a high electric field will will be that thing that sets off the lightning strike. Wow. And that's what happened for uh, Apollo 12 on launch. Huh. Uh, triggered lightning two times on launch. Oh wow! And uh, uh, Atlas Centaur one six, Atlas Centaur sixty seven in the late eighties triggered lightning upon launch. It was an unmanned vehicle. Okay. And that vehicle had to be destroyed because it got off tar- uh, got off tar- uh, got off the trajectory. Oh okay. So we worry about lightning and thunderstorms quite a lot. Yeah. And if it's a wing vehicle or a parachute vehicle, if you're nearby enough to a thunderstorm, you could also encounter some turbulence, which would be a bad day. <laughs> yeah. So there's lots of things to worry about. You know, you want to be able to see the vehicle, you know, clouds out there. When you launch or recover the vehicle, a lot of times you want to have good videography of the, the vehicle. You want to film it mm-hmm. so you can go back and do some engineering analysis later. So you want to be able to see it, mm-hmm. clouds get in the way. Oh, so yeah. we worry about that quite a bit as well. Right. Uh, some of the recent testing we've been doing in preparation for some of the missions upcoming, we're also uh, dropping the uh, test vehicle from uh, high heights either from an airplane or from a balloon. And in the case for something that's being lifted up by a balloon, you want to know where the balloon's going to go before you drop something. Yeah. Because you don't want to drop it on somebody or somebody's house. Of course. And you want to keep it on the range. So you worry about the upper winds for things like that as well. So there's lots of different weather ideas that are out there that you got to look at. Yeah. 
So you, in your position as meteorologist in charge, so when you're looking at this stuff, you say you say you're looking at this, and you got to worry about that. You you got looking at this, you got to worry about this. Mm -hmm. um, what are you doing to advise, to make recommendations? Are you there in the testing field, like saying, "Hey, you got to watch out for these winds," or how are you involved? Mostly at Spaceflight Meteorology Group, we're working in one of the uh, multi-purpose support rooms in the Mission Control Center. Okay, there's a weather room essentially it's the single purpose multi-purpose support room i guess okay uh, and we've got uh, several we've got two major weather systems back there one that nasa's provided that legacy system we've had for years and years mm -hmm. called the mids and then i've got another computer system for weather stuff called awips 2 which is in every national weather service office across the country okay and both of those systems get weather satellite data including the new uh, uh go 16 which is a tremendous asset to the nation's economy and protection and it's it's a wonderful satellite I'll yeah i was gonna say that's that. the satellite right uh and we also get uh radar data from the network of national weather service radars that are across the country uh also get data from the uh air force's radar at the cape they have a weather radar near patrick air force base as well receive that mm -hmm. uh and all the uh, complete suite of uh, weather observations from ground reporting stations okay typically at airports but more and more we're getting uh, smaller scale measurements, uh, mesoscales, what we call it. And a lot of those are uh, special networks, including some that NASA operates and the other uh, space and missile ranges operate. They have dense networks of surface observations. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are uh, home hobbyists. Oh, We retrieve that data as well. It does need a little bit more quality control from time to time. <laughs> sure. But we do drag that in, so we actually have quite a lot of data. And then out in the field, they'll typically be, at, especially on the DOD space and missile ranges, where we do a lot of the activities, there'll be some uh, meteorologists or meteorological technicians uh, in the field, and they'll be releasing special weather balloons for us as well, and mm -hmm. taking special surface weather measurements as well. Uh, and there's other technologies to measure the upper winds. There's some uh, wind profilers that we use. So we collect all that data from the field back here in the MCC, and we'll advise the flight control team, ah. uh, primarily the flight director. Uh, okay. My office is attached to the flight director office here at, at JSC. Okay. So I have a National Weather Service boss, and I have a NASA boss. My NASA boss is the one of the flight directors. Okay. Uh, typically the ascent entry flight directors. Okay. Uh, is that mainly when you're pulled in, ascent entry? Or yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll, when there's a mission or an orbit, we will monitor some things. Sure. For example, for the... For the International Space Station, you know, I'm on call if I'm not on console. Okay. Uh, so if they have some sort of emergency and they got to get into the Soyuz and they want to maintain a situational awareness of where they could land, I can be called in and provide weather support for that as well. Okay. And just make sure that, you know, wherever they're going to land, you know, you have a good idea of what yeah. that weather is going to be at that time. And for the Soyuz capsule in particular, it's it's pretty robust weather-wise. The yeah. Russians make pretty hardy hardware. <laughs> yeah. They've launched in cold weather yes, and they winds have. and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, excellent vehicle. Um, you know, you say you're, you're, you're back in Mission Control and you're, you're getting all of this, this data, these data from different sources. What are some of the key things that you're looking for? What do you need to make an informed decision? What kinds of data? Typically, be the wind speeds, wind speeds, especially okay. near the surface. And uh, from the weather balloon, it'll be the winds that we measure aloft. Uh, we'll combine those observations with uh, the computer model forecasts that we have, mm -hmm. and we get those from our national center. And on occasion, we'll run some special localized models as well at a higher scale. 
Yeah. And we'll blend those together and come up with a forecast for the, at the landing time. Okay. Okay. Also, we'll monitor the radar, of course. And uh, a lot of people don't know this. There's lightning detection networks out there now, so we can tell hey. where lightning's striking the ground. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Uh, there's several networks out there. And uh, also we have uh, uh, what's called uh, lightning mapping arrays, or uh, which is a three-dimensional lightning display, which will th show lightning bolts in three dimensions so you can see the in-cloud flashes as well. Mm -hmm. It's. I remember when I first got here and I saw that kind of data, I was like, wow, that, that stuff exists. <laughs> it, and it's still to this day, it's still really phenomenal and really neat to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's how we monitor for the lightning data. Okay. With that in the radar as well. What, um, so you can, you know, obviously it has a lot of space flight applications, but that sounds like lightning data. That could be used for something else, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, power companies use it all the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, matter of fact, I think some of the initial funds way back in the late 80s and early 80s got that started was some of the power companies wanted to know, you know, when their lines were going to go down, that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's where a lot of the initial impetus for that kind of research and technology came about. But it's expanded into lots of sectors of the country right oh now. sure that seems you know that that's good data <laughs> oh and there's a lightning uh sensor that's on the uh, new goes 16 satellite as well okay so and it'll send data down to the ground every 20 seconds and it uses an optical detector for that so you have practically global cover well at least half the globe that the satellite can see from geostationary orbit okay so there lightning data is everywhere now yeah What's uh tell, tell, what's more about the Go 16 satellite? What what is that? Go 16 is the new geostationary satellite, which means it sets in a relative position, same relative position over the Earth all the time. Right. It scans the Earth routinely every five minutes. Wow. Uh, it's got what's called two mesoscale sectors, which you can zoom in on a smaller part of the of the Earth, mm -hmm. and it'll scan those every minute. And if you overlap those two, you can get data every 30 seconds. So it looks like a high resolution movie. The, uh, the visible channel is twice as, uh, uh, has twice the uh, precision of the previous uh, era of satellites, so you see more data, smaller data. And it's also got more uh, infrared channels, so you can see how the water vapor is moving around in the atmosphere. You can see clouds. You can see uh, areas that, that respond to uh, sulfur content, so you can pick out volcanic eruptions, for example, with it. Whoa. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can do with it. Now, it's, it, get on the web, look for Go 16, look for a high-res movie loop. It, it's really cool to look at. Yeah. And for a scientist, you know, it's, it's really exciting data. Absolutely. And for the space flight side of that, now that we get data more frequently, we can, you know, if the situation's kind of dicey on what's going on with cloud cover, you, you can watch that right up almost to the last minute. And you don't have to wait, you know, Previously, we'd have to wait f up to 15 minutes for the data to come in. And a lot can happen in 15 minutes. Yeah. For example, in the shuttle era, you know, for the return to launch side aboard, that was 25 minutes after landing. So oh. we had to wait 15 minutes for a satellite picture. You know, something can move a long way or form pretty quickly in that amount of time, which is almost the same amount of time you're trying to forecast. Wow. So did, it's really nice. Did the needs of the shuttle program sort of drive this, like, you know, the need for for quicker data? No, not directly, okay. but, uh, you know, it's more or less just uh, technology marching on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
which it will do, right? So um, I, the Ghost 16, I do remember seeing a lot of imagery uh, when when Harvey was passing through. Yes. Uh, you know, they were there was a lot that was being monitored. I think um, soil soil saturation or something. Oh, uh, soil like, moisture, soil, soil moisture. saturation. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 One of the infrared channels will respond to water on the ground really well, and you can see the soils become saturated using the infrared channels. Yeah. Some of the near channels that respond to vegetation. Okay. Yeah. It's something we didn't have before. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, back, let's go to the, the shuttle program for a bit. You, were you, did you work the shuttle program, the weather for it? Yes, I did. Okay. Uh, since 1991 is when I arrived. Okay. And I've worked uh, about 92 of the space shuttle missions. All right. And uh, I was the uh, ascent entry lead forecaster here at SMG for about 14 of those. All right. Yeah. So it was quite a lot of them. Asset entry. Okay, so what what did that look like? What sorts of things were you doing specifically for sh- uh, shuttle missions in Florida, launches and landings? For Florida, on ascent day, SMG was primarily wor- worried about the uh, weather at the abort landing sites. Okay. One of those was the return to launch site, which would have been the, the shuttle landing facility there at the Kennedy Space Center. Okay. The interesting thing about that on launch day was while everybody was looking out towards the pad from the launch control center, it looked out over the ocean. Mm-hmm. And if the sea breeze moved inland, you could have showers and thunderstorms occurring behind you over at the shuttle landing facility. Oh. So you'd look out one direction, and it's, oh, it's great. Why are we waiting? And yet, you know, five miles behind you, there was a thunderstorm going on. Okay. Uh, the other thing we would look at would be the transoceanic abort landing sites. Those were in Africa and Spain and later in France, and we'd monitor the weather for those as well. On launch day, you had to have good RTLS weather, the return to launch site, mm-hmm. and you had to have at least one of the uh, transoceanic abort landing sites had to have good weather. And we did actually uh, scrub four launches for Tau weather during the entire history of the space shuttle program. Wow. And Just because nothing was lining up at those times. All, you know, all three or all four sites would be, would be down for the weather criteria. And huh. you were not a, a popular person on that day because <laughs> uh, that meant the weather was good at KSC, and everybody's waiting for something that's, you know, on the other side of the ocean. Right. But, you know, keeping the astronaut safety in mind, that's why those rules were there. Yeah. What were some of the big takeaways that you learned in your tenure at uh, working the shuttle? Mostly the the newer technology that came along, and we got better and better at forecasting. Ah. Um, You know, early on, we were kind of split between landing at KSC and at Edwards Air Force Base. each site had its own unique weather issues. At Edwards Air Force Base, typically uh, the surface winds were going to be a problem, either the crosswinds or a headwind for the shuttle. Okay. At KSC, you know, we usually picked launch and landing times. We used some climatology to help pick those. So we usually would launch during the time of the day that was good for that, and so the RTLS weather would generally be good. Once we had the uh, uh, ground-up rendezvous to the space station, that meant you couldn't choose the launch time anymore like you used to. You know, it used to always be early in the morning mm-hmm. when the weather's typically good and the winds are light. Okay. But when you had a uh, ground-up rendezvous, you pretty much had to be in the same orbital plane as the ISS. Right. Which meant any time of day. Then we started moving into the late afternoon. We ran into more thunderstorms. Um. We ran into more crosswinds because the way the runway's built out there, it's parallel to the coast. Sea breeze would come in with an east wind. That'd be all crosswind. So. We got more and more instrumentation to track the sea breeze. Mm-hmm. We could do that with a really dense network of surface wind towers. You can also see it on the radar, and you can also see it on the satellite imagery as well. So mm-hmm. the way technologies helped us with that, and then the advances in computer modeling for forecasting, it kept getting smaller and smaller. 
in the scale that you could look at and in the shorter times that you could look at, and it kept getting better and better. So things always seemed like we got much better as we got along in the space shuttle program. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so the shuttle program ended in 2011. Now mm-hmm. we're in 2017 looking forward to commercial crew launches here soon. Uh, what technology has been developing over these past couple of years that we can apply to commercial crew? For a commercial crew, we've, we've got uh, the newer satellite we've been talking about, Go 16. Yeah. Uh, we're getting newer and more portable uh, weather balloon systems that we can use as well. Hmm. Uh, I've got one back in the office where the re- ground receiver, you know, it's, it's a laptop computer and a, and a handheld radio, essentially, and a little tiny antenna. You know, used to, you had to have a great big uh, radio direction finder that would follow the balloon or you would track it with radars. Yeah. Now it's all GPS-based. Okay. So it's higher precision, more portable, more better everything, as a matter of fact. And it, as technology's gotten better, we've gotten better measurement systems and better forecasting systems as well. But in large part, you know, it's still the same old meteorology we're using and applying for for the new vehicles that are coming down, both, both SLS, Orion, and the commercial crew programs. Okay. All right. A lot of the same stuff. Um, so are you... Is, is the weather that takes place for launches and landings, what, what, what else besides, you know, just mainly ascent and entry are you looking at that helps out with human spaceflight? Oh, you know, in terms of the, just about all the weather that you can think of, really. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, like I said, it depends on the vehicle. You know, sometimes you, you'll be looking at the humidity. Sometimes you'll be looking at the cloud coverage. Hmm. Sometimes it's the radar. Usually it's all of the above yeah and you also have to keep an eye out on things that aren't necessarily weather related as well because hmm. uh, sometimes you'll see things on radar that are uh, that look like a shower or a thunderstorm and it turns out it's uh, chaff you know it's the same you know, it's it's what the military drops tin foil they'll drop it you know to fool radar and uh. when they're doing tests you know that'll pick up on the weather radar I see and we've had that in the past in the shuttle program. Uh, okay. you know, that's one of the things. So you got to be aware when they're doing tests and exercises upwind from you because that stuff will blow over you. So ah. there's, you got to keep an eye on a lots of different things, what's going on there, as well as the state of the equipment. And uh, on occasion, you know, you know, satellites, you know, they'll, they'll shut them down when they're looking at the sun during certain periods. And if you're looking at low Earth orbiting satellites, you got to make sure it comes over at the right time. So there's a lot of different things, not just pure meteorology, but the uh, logistical side that you got to maintain awareness of as well, yeah. as well as knowing what the flight control team is doing. Yeah. Is there, um, so it sounds like a lot of the weather that you're looking at is is within the atmosphere. You're, you have a lot of data coming there. Is there anything that kind of goes into space? Is there a space weather element to this? There is. Uh, Generally, the, the true space weather, things like uh, solar flares, ah. geomagnetic storms like that, there's a group here at Johnson Space Center called the, uh, uh, the SHRAG, the Space Radiation Analysis Group. Cool. Yeah, they, they generally handle most of that activity, and they work closely with another NOAA center, as a matter of fact. There's oh. the uh, Space Environment Group, uh, which is in Boulder, which is a National Weather Service office, and, and they maintain all the uh, forecasts for space weather. Uh, for the country is it, it but generally in SMG the space flight meteorology group we're looking at weather primarily in the lowest like hundred thousand feet although on occasion we do go higher uh, for vehicles that come in on like a high uh, inclination trajectory you know they're coming in 
in an orbit that goes like 57 degrees north and south. Hmm. During certain times of the year, you do have to worry about things like noctilucent clouds, which are about 82 kilometers high in the atmosphere. Oh. Yeah, we had to design criteria for shuttle for that because you didn't want to fly through that because it's a cloud and you're going very, very fast at those altitudes. Yeah. Uh, but they're generally restricted to very high latitudes. Hmm. So we usually didn't have a problem with that. The mission was designed around that. Okay. Uh, you know, on occasion we did do some things that were up in the mesosphere, the stratosphere, the higher atmosphere. But generally it's what most people consider weather is what we're looking at. Okay. So how does weather relate to climate? You know, you're talking about looking at weather through long periods of time. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of data, and the data seems to just be the instruments used to gather data are just getting better and better. Is there is there a relationship there, weather and climate? Yeah. The old saying is, you know, climate is what you expect. You know, from you expect winter to be cold. Yeah. And weather is what you get day to day. Mm -hmm. You can think of it a lot in terms like that. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, for spatial a lot of the missions were planned with climate data in mind in hmm. that we knew that early in the morning winds were light. Right. Uh, showers and thunderstorms wouldn't be around. So a lot of those were planned with that in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the design criteria for some of the new programs coming up are looking into that as well. As we've gone and looked at the uh, ocean wave climatology, especially in the North Atlantic. And a lot of the missions are designed with that in mind because in the North Atlantic, for, uh, for example, Waves get pretty high, especially hmm. in the wintertime. You know, 20, 30-foot waves, they're not all that uncommon. Yeah. And you really can't design a vehicle to last very long if it should happen to splash down in that, you know, either through uh, some sort of contingency or an abort. Yeah. So most of the vehicles are designed that if they do abort, they'll turn around and, not, and avoid those areas. So that's one way climate data, you know, long-term historical data has been used to help plan those kind of activities. Right. And uh, the other thing is, you know, even back in the shuttle days, when we used to land on the uh, Edwards Air Force Base lake beds, you know, generally they're dry, but uh, there's still a lake bed. <laughs> and we went back and looked at a lot of the data for that because sometimes they would fill up with water. Hmm. And those typically happen during El Nino years, which oh. are usually associated with heavier uh, than normal precipitation and rainfall in the desert southwest hmm. in the wintertime. So if we knew there was an El Nino year coming up, you know, we had a pretty good idea that we might lose the lake beds hmm. and we'd have to land it strictly on the on the concrete runway out there. Huh. So there's a lot of things you can use climate data for, generally in the planning and design stage for just about any spacecraft. Huh. Is there is there major climate considerations for or not not necessarily major, but just anything you're watching out for for commercial crew launches in the in the future? Uh there, there will be, at least in the sort of the shorter time span between weather and climate. Okay. Because uh, for a commercial crew and also for Orion, mm -hmm. you know, when we go to the moon, some of those missions are going to be very long duration. So yeah. So you're getting out past the, the, the typical ability to forecast day-to-day -day weather. So you're looking more at what the weather three and four weeks out might be like. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, a lot of that is climate-based, and you can use some of the long, longer-range climate kind of weather patterns like El Nino yeah. or uh, Madden-Julian oscillations, things like that that happen in the tropics to help you predict what the general trend that week might be. It might be drier that week. Ah. It might be less windy that week. Okay. Or it might be more stormy, which would drive more higher ocean waves, that sort of thing. There's, hmm. We do look at some of that kind of data as well, even in the operations. 
So when you say, you know, beyond your capacity to, to look for weather, because, you know, you're talking about Orion missions and, you know, some of these moon missions are several days, several weeks. So you got to plan ahead, but but you only can go toward a certain limit. I know, you know, whenever I listen to the weather forecast mm-hmm. or go and check it, it can only go for about two weeks. And even then, it's, yeah. you know, you, you throw your hands up in the air because you're not sure. Yeah, the theoretical limit for about a day-to-day kind of forecast is about two weeks. You know, And we're not even really that good yet. Okay. We've got computer models that'll spit those out all the time. Yeah. Uh, but there's larger scale, you know, if you look more like towards the means and extremes, you can press that out and get a pretty good idea what's going to happen. Hmm. Uh, like like I mentioned, you know, three weeks from now, we expect it to be very dry that week. Yeah. You know, that doesn't tell you it's going to be 34 degrees at 7 a.m. in the morning. But if you're just interested in, I don't want it to be wet, you know, I've got this thing setting outdoors I can't you know, get wet, you know, I got payload sitting outside, it can't get wet. Oh, yeah. That's a kind of good thing to know as well. Okay, cool. Um, so besides launches and landings and, you know, planning for forecasts, what what are the implications here at the center? Because we have mission control, and yep. mission control has to make sure that we're operating, so I'm guessing there's certain implications for weather here at the Johnson Yes, there, uh, I do maintain a, a, a basic sort of weather watch whenever I'm on duty for the Space Center. Okay. And for those on site, if you receive those... Uh, uh, Email warnings from Jens. Uh, some people usually pass those on. You know, for the lightning alerts or yeah. notice of severe weather, I'll be the one generally sending those out. Okay. Uh, matter of fact, I think it has my name on the bottom of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's generally done for everyone's personal safety here on the center. Okay. Uh, for the mission control team, and the, uh, a lot, lot, large part of that is to maintain so that they know if they're going to have any power outages coming their way Hmm. and also for some of the immediate planning for some of their communications to and from the spacecraft uh especially the iss i'll monitor the local weather and also the weather at some of the tedris downlink sites oh that's uh, right white sands uh missile range yeah and also over at uh at guam they have another antenna okay so monitor that but for tropical season for like hurricanes the uh iss flight control team if they need to you know they can shut down the center they can relocate and set up shop someplace else remotely and still control the space station. Right. And part of that planning is, well, we want to know where the hurricane's going to go. Yeah. So I'll brief the flight control team here, as well as the center director and the emergency management folks here at JSC okay. on the potential of the hurricane's track. And I'll tailor it so it's specific to the to the center itself and our operations. Okay. I see. Um, so what was, uh, what was Harvey like then? Because I know Harvey was pretty recent and the harvey was very recent uh <laughs> the the interesting thing about harvey is over the four days that it rained around here we got uh it was 40 i wrote it down brought it with me because i couldn't <laughs> remember it 42.99 inches of rain here at jsc whoa uh which easily set a record uh we had 20.72 inches of that occurred in one day whoa so that's over a foot and a half of rain in one day and yeah. you know nearly four feet over the course of four days uh so i i sent out some uh messages and uh, briefed the uh center directors and the emergency managers here at jse during the storm mm-hmm. uh, and also uh maintain these observations which i don't know your listeners if they're interested if you want to see what the weather is here at jsc particularly on building 30 there's some weather instrumentation that the center operations oh. director maintains and i take that data and i post it out into the world wide web okay so you can go to uh, weather.gov smg bldg30 building 30 
Okay. And uh, it'll give you the latest weather from the rooftop. Uh, so I maintain that uh, data going out to, for everyone to use. Yeah. Got another rain gauge here on site, an old-style rain gauge out near Building 421. Hmm. Uh, the interesting thing during Harvey was I came out on Saturday to empty that rain gauge because it holds 11 inches, and I figured it might fill up. <laughs> yeah. So I dumped it out, and it had about 7 or 8 inches. After that, I couldn't get back on site. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So that one, I don't know how much it had in it, but the rain gauge on top of the roof, it's a what we call a tipping bucket. It continuously measures. So that's the one we know where we got 42.99 inches of rain. Oh, okay. Which is quite a lot of rain. But, you know, yeah, you overall, right the flooding here on site, directly on site, wasn't too bad from what I understand. Okay. You just couldn't get here. Yeah. Or leave here. Did so. you have any... Did you advise whether to, to shut down the center or any sort of, did you have any contingency plans in place be, knowing yeah. the weather? Uh, leading up to it, briefed the uh, center operations folks and the ISS control team. Okay. And also uh, briefed the uh, flight operations directorate folks that are in charge of the aircraft out at uh, Ellington Field. Oh, that's whether right. Whether or not they want to move some of the aircraft. Yeah. Uh, most of them remained on site because it wasn't going to be a high wind event. Is mostly going to be a heavy rain event from Harvey around here. So most of those planes were left there. A few of them flew out. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of folks on site got briefings on that, did that leading up to it. Over the weekend when it was raining, no one could get into work. Fortunately for me, I worked remotely. Uh, I had uh, remote access to my weather systems here on site. Oh, good. You had a connection. I yeah. had a connection. Yeah. I could use almost everything I could by that I could use when I'm sitting here. Yeah. Not everything, but pretty close to it. That's good. So I was able to continue the weather briefings and send out the uh, the JSE emergency notification system messages from home. Right. Yeah, so that's one unique way of doing working from home, I guess. Yeah. No, it was completely necessary, right? Because everyone needed to stay safe during yes. that whole thing. But you have instrumentation that's specific to Johnson Space Center, yes. right? So when you're looking at this data, you can make you can make decisions because you know that it's going to impact this exact area. Are there are there instruments that kind of do the same thing across the United States too? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The nice thing about JSC and especially Harris County, uh, the county officials here around Houston, they maintain a really dense network of uh, rain gauges and stream gauges, so they know how much rain is falling. It's the Harris County Flood Control District. Okay, they're really good at their job too, by the way. And, yeah. Uh, so you really got a pretty good idea of where it's flooding and how hard the rain's coming down, just about anywhere in the immediate area around here. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, completely necessary for, for Houston, Texas. Yes, it right? is. It floods a lot here. <laughs> when it rains, it rains a lot. I learned that when I moved down here. Yeah. Any uh, any big lessons that you learned or, or some just fascinating findings from, from this record-setting storm? Just how much it rained. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the odd thing was we had uh, – forecast guidance that suggested it could be you know that high but no one quite believed it was going to be that much right of course when you're telling somebody it's going to rain 20 inches in a couple of days that's still really 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 bad <laughs> yeah uh, but to see 40 and you know upwards of a few reports of over 50 inches in the immediate area that was just truly amazing oh that's right because yeah. the 40 was just at johnson space center yes yeah. yeah that's not even considering uh, and the sheer geographic extent of the 30 plus inch rainfall amounts is, it was mind-boggling yeah and i saw some uh, reports from some gps sensors that the weight of the water enough was measurable in the amount that it sunk the earth for a few days from the water rising uh, right residing on top of it. it was 
the elevated shim of Houston went down by like a centimeter or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's just mind-boggling. Yeah, use that word again. Right. <laughs> How many? Um. What? What was the? What? I, I don't. I forget the um, number of gallons. It was fifty trillion or something. Uh, like it's, that. it's a huge amount. Yeah. You, you was... couldn't drink it. I know that. <laughs> oh man, it was a lot though. Um. What What are we learning about? Um, hurricanes and and how they affect uh mission operations so what's what's the what's the backup plan if if you know i guess the plan right here was for the the flight controllers and they remained in place they remained in place right and they were doing everything nobody leaves they set up cots and everything yes they did uh they did uh largely because we expected to be a heavy rain event yeah uh if it had been more of a uh, stronger storm uh if harvey would have come ashore around Houston instead of down near Rockport and Corpus Christi, Mm -hmm. we probably would have shut the center down completely and they would have relocated. Because in that case, it had been a high wind event as well because it came ashore as a Category 4 hurricane, as I believe. And you would have had some storm surge problems as well. You know, you would have had water pushed up into Galveston Bay and that would have gotten into Clear Creek and water would have come on site. Now, the site does have some uh, measures to protect some of the critical infrastructure. from storm surge, but you'd be losing power, you'd have to be on backup power, and then even then your backup power, if the water levels rose enough from the storm surge being pushed in, you know, you could lose some of your generators as well. Oh, yeah. The interesting thing is if you've ever visited uh, the Mission Control Center, especially in the lobby, when you walk in, you'll see some uh, uh, gates that are lying flat on the ground. Those are designed for uh, hurricane storm surge. They'll if we expect a large enough uh, storm or powerful enough storm to come through, they'll raise those little gates up, and that'll keep water from coming into the ground floor of the building. Oh, wow. Yeah, you can you can see those as you walk into the lobby. Hey. They were put in five to six, maybe ten years ago. Okay. But yeah, so the building, it's got some protection from rising waters. Right. You know, most of them are designed for some uh, decent wind speeds as well. I think the weakest part of the structure there is designed for 90 miles an hour, but the main part of the MCC can withstand much more than that, I think. Wow. All right. Well, it sounds like they have a lot of protection just for the building itself, but then there's backup plans, right? In yeah. case if they do, for whatever reason, evacuate the center, just get out, they can operate the International Space Station from remote locations, Yes, right? they can. They, they've got a complete way of doing that from from hotels, yeah, as I understand. Wow, uh, they can you know move further inland here in Texas and do most of the controls remotely. They'll set that up, mm-hmm. and they'll be in close contact with the uh, uh, Marshall Space Flight Center at the uh, Hosk over there, mm-hmm. and then in contact with the Russian control room as well. Mm-hmm. So they can in certain things that you know they may or may not be able to control. They could still pass off to either uh, to the Russian control room or to the Hosk as well. But I think nearly everything they can control remotely you know they'll take a whole bunch of laptops and send people out and run it from somewhere deep in south texas or central texas (laughs) wow um just hurricanes in in general and how they affect the coast and just these past hurricanes over um uh, over just 2017 you know including maria and and all these that swept by I'm sure the NOAA, um, the GO-16 satellite was checking out some data there, but is there some significant findings that we found from some of the hurricanes this year? Well, there's a lot of them. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, that, I think that'll wait until the season's over to analyze some of the data. I see. One of the uh, 
interesting things they've done a lot this year, though, is uh, this combination between uh, NOAA and NASA. NASA has been flying some uh, unmanned aerial vehicles around hurricanes and above them, and they're dropping what's called a drop on. It's essentially a weather balloon in reverse. It's on a parachute, and the uh, unmanned aerial it can drop like 60 to 100 of these little things around a storm huh. and be up there in the air around it for you know, 12 to 24 hours so you can collect lots and lots of data on the immediate environment surrounding the hurricane so you know what what is steering it around yeah so there's a lot of new technologies being flown by nasa and by NOAA out there and i think some of that will help us get data into our computer models and make better forecasts in the future for hurricanes right a lot of technologies to to measure, you know, a lot of scientific instruments. But has there been um, engineering challenges or or maybe milestones to counter? Because you said you were talking about uh, you said it was Apollo twelve that got struck by lightning. Yes, but it kept going. Right? Yes. So um, I, and I know they think they had to fix some things once they were up there. Yes, they did. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what what kinds of an engineering things have been developed to protect from weather? A lot of that's been procedural, you know. Oh, okay. A lot of it's, you know, you, you go to a lot of meetings here at NASA and you'll hear about the integrated vehicle, mm. making sure the left hand knows what the right hand is doing. Ah. So, you know, if, if you're protected for lightning here but you're not protected for lightning over here, what happens if this part gets struck and it gets over through another means? Oh, yeah. So it's pulling together everything as a whole. Mm-hmm. In terms of the natural environment, lightning or winds or whatever, you know, a lot of the, that's been procedural. Now, uh, there's a lot of things you can do now to harden things against lightning. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, a lot of the technology is the exact opposite as well. Is uh, you know, a lot of airplanes used to be made out of metal skins. When lightning would strike the outside, you know, it'd be conducted around the outside. More and more composite materials now. Ah, and they behave differently than metal. So a lot of engineering's got to go into looking at when you use composites, how can you treat that for lightning strikes that might occur in the, in the future? Okay. There's lots of little things that you, it trickles down to. Yeah. Um, a lot of the data, a lot of the instruments measure wind, too, and wind seems to be just a giant consideration for space flight in general, which yep. makes sense, right? You have things mm-hmm. going up into space and coming down from space, and wind's going to blow it. Um, but are there are there ways to sort of fight that? Is there, I guess, you know, try to make it so if you're going to land, there's you have the best chance of landing where you want to, regardless of wind or something like that? A lot of that's monitoring, either with monitoring. weather balloons, and uh, uh, we use radar wind profilers now. Mm, okay. You can essentially take a phased array radar and point it straight up, and uh, you can get wind measurements from that, even in clear air. Ah. Uh, and... Uh, there's one of those that's operated out at the Kennedy Space Center, uh, really large ones, the antennas, you know, a bunch of wires laying out in a field, uh, and it measures winds up to 60,000 feet, and it gets them about every five to six minutes, hmm. which is really, really frequent. Yeah. So if you design things for your trajectory, you know, the way things are still done today in a large part is you, you measure the winds, and you know from past experience how much they'll change in two hours and four hours, and you protect against that statistically. But if you can push that further and further to launch time because you can measure it more frequently, uh, you can save a lot of launches because you can say, oh, well, I'm protecting way too much here or I'm not protecting enough because I can see changes that are arriving late. Uh. With a weather balloon, you'd have to release it, and for one thing, it's blowing down range. It's not directly overhead. Yeah. So if the winds are high, you know, 
an hour into the flight, the balloon could be 50, 60 miles away. And that's where you're really measuring the wind instead of like overhead. Where you need to. With a profiler, it's pretty much straight overhead. Okay. Aircraft can measure winds as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the satellites, you can track cloud elements and you can get an idea what the wind speeds are at certain heights as well. There's okay. a lot of ways to do that. And even the usual uh, radars that we use for weather, you know, detect clouds and storms in motion. Yeah. They'll, they'll measure winds as well. Wow. There's a lot of ways to do it now. Is there is there um, other parts of the economy where all this data is being brought into? I'm sure the airline industry must have. Oh, said, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a large private weather industry out there. A lot of people don't know about it. Most people think uh, there's only two, well, maybe three things in weather. There's the guy I see on television. <laughs> Most frequently asked question I always get when I tell them I'm a meteorologist is what channel do you work on? <laughs> yeah. And then the second one is, you know, you work for the National Weather Service. Or the, or the military, because mm. they, they employ a lot. Or, you know, you teach. Or you teach. But there's, uh, there's a large private weather industry out there that tailor weather information to specific industries. Uh, a lot of that does with energy trading. Hmm. They'll advise them, if, if you've got a pretty good idea that two weeks from now it's going to be much colder than normal in the Northeast, you can go out and buy a lot of fuel oil, and, and you trade that just like anything. That's another piece of information to help you. By futures, for example. Okay. There's, it's a big sector of the economy. The more I learn about that, the more I'm amazed at how large it is. Yeah. The insurance companies, they want to know where hailstorms have occurred. Oh, yeah. Transportation industry, of course. Uh, many, many years ago, I worked for a private weather firm. Okay. The trucking industry loved us. Oh. They could, if there was a big snowstorm in the Midwest, they could reroute all their trucks, you know, drive further south, and they wouldn't get stuck for days on end. Right. So... And then, of course, you know, if you've ever flown on an airplane, you've had a weather delay. So. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's pretty expensive because uh, weather affects, mm-hmm. I guess you could say, weather affects everyone. Just right? about everybody. Yeah. yeah. How about that? Awesome. Um, so what's your what's your background? How would you get to go into meteorology, and how would you end up at spaceflight? Well, it, it's interesting that most of the people I've known that are meteorologists, there's only generally two kinds of us. It's not completely true, but... <laughs> there's those that, well, I was in the military and I had a math and physics background. They made me one. Oh. And then there's the, that's all I ever wanted to do. Well, I'm one of that's all I ever wanted to do. Oh, cool. Ever since I was a, a child, that's the only thing I ever wanted to do. Cool. And fortunately, I was able to do that. And yeah. I think that was largely, I grew up in Oklahoma. Hmm. So you're worried about tornadoes. Oh, yeah. Although I take the interesting thing about that, it was growing up in Oklahoma as a child, went to the University of Oklahoma, studied meteorology, never saw a tornado. Really? <laughs> Never. <laughs> I was waiting for a good tornado story to say that's what inspired well, me. Then, uh, well, then, well, being scared by them, that uh, was part of the deal that made me do that. Oh, sure. Uh, but my first job in the National Weather Service was stationed in Amarillo, Texas, and we got a radar indication of a tornado. Huh. And so we issued a tornado warning for the county we were in. And somebody looked out the window and goes, hey, there it is. So that was the first one I saw. <laughs> it was in Amarillo, Texas. Yeah, it was in Amarillo. Second one was a water spout down here at Galveston Bay, which we see from time to time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, just this summer, uh, someone sent a picture to me on site of a water spout over Clear Lake. What? Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got several pictures of water spouts from uh, over Galveston Bay and Clear Lake that are nearby us over the past several years. Oh, man. It's, since 2000, we've had five, maybe six of them we've seen from JSC. So it's, Five, maybe six in the past 17 years. Okay. Yeah. So it's... Not entirely uncommon, but okay. it's not common either. Right. But, yeah, so we we do have them here as well. 
so that's what got me interested into it with the University of Oklahoma. Studied meteorology. We're well known for severe storms. Mm-hmm. Then uh, worked for a private weather company for a while. Then uh, joined the National Weather Service mm-hmm. and uh, saw an opening for uh, techniques development me- meteorologist at the Space Flight Meteorology Group. Cool. Didn't know anything about it. Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah. So I applied. Somewhere along the line, they must have got the applications turned upside down, and they hired me. <laughs> uh, and I came in as a techniques development meteorologist, which meant I was developing forecast techniques and worked with the computer systems to make them friendlier for the, for the lead forecasters who did the actual forecasting for the launches and, or for the abort landings and for the end mission landings for the space shuttle. Hmm. And about a year and a half into that, I was promoted to be one of the lead forecasters. And since then, I've grown up to be the meteorologist in charge. So. All right. So I've gone from the ground floor to the penthouse all in, all at SMG. Very cool. So how has your responsibility changed from, you know, when you first came here and you said you were working 90-something? 90, 90 92 missions. 92 worked, shuttle yeah. missions to, to meteorolo- meteorologist in charge. Well, uh, given the current staffing, I'm the meteorologist in charge of myself. <laughs> uh, the size of the office has waxed and waned with the amount of flights we've got going i see uh so for right now i'm doing everything so that's so i i manage the computer systems Hmm. i'm the property custodian never a good job to have Uh, and and so i i do all the forecasting now for all the projects and tests that we're supporting so i'm I'm pretty much doing everything now so i've i've learned a lot of management side of things yeah and uh hopefully you know sooner or later the office will expand again because the amount of uh uh, flights we'll have and programs we're supporting that's really starting to ramp up now we're doing more and more test support qualification tests yeah and the actual launches and landings aren't too far away now so we'll need some extra people for that oh that's right it won't be as many as the shuttle the new vehicles are less weather sensitive than the shuttle that's one thing i've noticed so far and that's a good thing huh yeah that's very true um so have you gone out to some of the tests to see how everything's working? Yes, I have. Okay. Uh, I've been out to see one of the uh, parachute qualification tests for the uh, Orion capsule. Okay. Out at Yuma Proving Grounds. Uh, we were very, very close to the action. Yeah. Uh, enough so that, uh, you know, someone drove by and said, are you supposed to be here? <laughs> I said, yeah. The weather shack is, is really, really close. Because they're wow. releasing weather balloons for the oh. measure of the upper winds. Yeah, this is in Yuma, Utah, right? Yeah, uh, Yuma, Arizona. Oh, Arizona. Okay, yep. okay. The funny thing I thought about that, though, was you know, I had parked a rental car there, and I see capsule coming down under the parachutes, and it looks like it's really close. Yeah. And my first thought was, it's gonna. how am I going to explain to the rental car company a spaceship fell on their car? <laughs> Fortunately, that didn't happen, though. Yeah. Did you get the uh, spaceship insurance, though, when you checked No, I did not no. get that, no. Okay. And I've Maybe been out on time. board some of the, the Navy ships that we used uh, to uh, recover the EFT-1 flight, that space capsule. From, oh. Yeah, so I was the forecaster for that mission as well here at JSC. Yeah, and that was out, when, did it land in the Pacific? Landed out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, yeah. about 600, 700 miles southwest of Baja, California. All right. Out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> uh, not far from where... The, Sharks like to hang out for some reason. Uh. The oceanographic things I learned about the mission. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I got to go out on that board that ship and, and uh, try to figure out where we wanted to place some special weather equipment on board. Okay. Uh, we ended up putting it right near the, right above the hangar on the back of the ship. So it worked out pretty well. The Navy's 
pretty pretty handy with their stuff. They know what they're doing out there. All right. One th- unique thing about that is for things that splash down, when you send uh, people and equipment out, you know, if something breaks, you can't go to the store to buy something. It's got to be with you. So you got to plan for every last contingency while you're out there. Oh, wow. Yeah. So did you encounter like a failure that you had to kind of deal with or you were prepared? We were pretty well prepared. The cool. uh, We had a, a meteorological meteor, meteorologist from Yuma go out and release the balloons from the ship for us. Okay. And one of the things he learned was, you know, you can't take lithium batteries out on a ship. Ah. You know, they don't like those on airplanes either anymore. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, he had an extension cord, which didn't meet standards. Oh. Fortunately, they loaned him one. So we, we learned quite a bit from that. Okay. That we'll be able to use for future Orion missions as yeah, well. Yeah, take that all with you. Awesome. All right. Well, I think uh, I think that'll about wrap it up for today. I know I have a lot more questions about weather and climate and all that kind of stuff, but I guess we'll just save it for another time. But uh, hey, Tim, thanks for coming on the show. This was uh, really just eye-opening about just the world of weather and how it affects human spaceflight and just the operations here at the center too. But just all over the place and sounds like a pretty good job i know you're doing everything but at the same time you're doing everything so that's kind of cool it is a good job and and you more you learn about weather the more you learn it, it impacts everything that's right okay well tim thanks for so much for being on the show you bet Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked about weather and how it affects human spaceflight with Tim Garner, the meteorologist in charge here at the NASA Johnson Space Center. Uh, so if you want to know more about what's going on here at the center, nasa.gov slash Johnson is a great resource for everything NASA Johnson Space Center. Obviously, we have social media accounts for the Johnson Space Center, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, if you want to know about the International Space Station or commercial crew programs and, and what's going on, we kind of alluded to some of the developments, developments going on in the commercial crew program especially, and soon we're going to be launching America. So if you want to know what's going on there, just go to nasa.gov slash commercial crew, nasa.gov gov slash iss is also a good resource and of course all of those are on facebook twitter and instagram as well if you have a question uh, just use the hashtag ask nasa on your favorite platform if you have a question about weather we can answer it in a later podcast like we've done before or if you have a suggestion for a topic that you really want us to cover uh, just let us know using that hashtag and just make sure to use hwap hwhap in that post uh, so i can find it and then we can make an episode on it so and for everyone so far who has submitted some ideas, thanks so much because we've actually been looking at them and have already made some um, uh, episodes dedicated to some of your questions and answered them. So thanks again. This podcast was recorded on October 25th, 2017. Thanks to Alex Perryman, John Stoll, and Jenny Knotts for helping out with the episode. And thanks again to Mr. Tim Garner for coming on the show. We'll be back next week. <laughs>